Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. The Sargasso Sea is actually the only sea in the entire world that has no coastline at all. Now the name of the sea comes from this free floating seaweed that you can see there on the screen. It's called the Sargassum. And it's all over the surface of this water. It's located in the North Atlantic. It covers about 2 million square miles. And the depths, they range anywhere from 5,000 feet all the way down to 23,000 feet deep. You can see it here. It kind of sits in a whirlpool between the four major Atlantic Ocean currents. And so what you end up with is this sort of dead spot in the middle of the ocean where the winds really don't move a lot. And because of this, the famous Bermuda Triangle is located in the northwestern section of it. Now this is part of the reason that history is covered with stories of lost ships because the ships before modern times, of course, were driven by the winds with sails. And as long as the ships driven by the sails didn't go too far into the middle, right into the center of the Sargasso Sea, they could turn off, they could correct their course and continue on to their destination. But when a captain of a ship was unaware, completely unaware of the danger that was ahead, if they slowly sailed into the center of the sea, there might not be a return. Now, this is actually typical of the allure of the sin nature. See, many people believe that they can enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season and then walk away whenever they want, only to discover that they have become enslaved into the life of carnality and that the power of sin is stronger than they imagined. You see, the more that a person becomes involved in the world, the harder time that they have separating from what they should. When powered vessels first started making their way into this ocean, into the sea here, they would find these vessels just floating and drifting and many times there'd be absolutely nothing wrong with them. They're in perfect shape, but they had still been abandoned. A ship has even been found in times past transporting humans as cargo back in the dark days of our history, but with nothing on board but skeletons. You see, there's nothing in the Sargasso Sea to which stranded ships could actually drop an anchor and anchor down to. Columbus, he discovered it, and he thought he was by land because he saw the sargassum seaweed that was floating along, and he thought, this must be land. So he tried to fathom the depth, but he found no bottom to it. Where he thought he could anchor to land was, in fact, the Nares abyssal plain of the Great Sea that is actually roughly three miles deep. 
Now, the spiritual applications are obvious for us all. Drifting, it means that you have no goal. You're not making progress. And that is why the author of Hebrews calls us to pay careful attention to the truth that we have been taught and not abandon it. To not stray in our faith by keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. The Sargasso Sea posed a threat to any vessels attempting to sail through it and any that drifted too much into the center because what would happen is the, the lack of wind meant that the ships, they began to slowly drift and the floating seaweed would get all caught up around it and, and it would just wrap up the ships and they'd become entangled in this floating seaweed. And when it became too much, Hope of escape of this dead spot in the ocean started to fade and a sense of hopelessness would overcome the crew. Isn't this what we do when we as believers become entangled all over again with the same sinful habits that we had before? You see, it starts as we drift in our walk with Christ. And I honestly think that Satan, oh, he is all too willing to assist in speeding up the retreat of the Christian. Peter actually wrote about this. In 2 Peter, he tells us this. He says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what happens? They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better, he says, for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to a true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mirror. It's easy enough for a believer in Christ to drift in their walk. That's what Hebrews warns us about here. Read the text with me again in verse 1. It says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Therefore, he says, for the reason, based on what came before and all that we looked at in chapter 1, for the reason that Jesus Christ is greater. Jesus Christ is better than the angels. So we had better take heed to the revelation of God that has come through him. Now, chapter 1 of Hebrews glorifies our Savior, Jesus Christ. But what does chapter 2 do? Well, chapter 2 exalts our great salvation in Christ. You see, it's always the Christians who drift, who drift in their faith that get themselves into trouble. Christians who could care little about God's word are always in constant danger. Now, we're going to see that the first audience, the first believers that were reading this epistle weren't growing in their faith as they should have been. They were stunted. They weren't growing in Christ. And so the writer tells them, pay closer attention. Much closer attention is the idea. Incline your ear to what you're being taught from the word of God. Listen up because it actually matters. The writer is saying, dig into the word of God for yourself. Fall in love with the simple word of God. Go deeper in your understanding and remain steadfast in your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you think, dear friend, as a Christian that you can grow, or even if you think you can maintain your faith without being a diligent student of the scriptures, I'm sorry, you're going to drift. It happens every single time. 
Now, the wording here, it gives the idea of taking heed, turning our minds towards something, but then actually doing something with it, taking action on it. You see, it's too easy for us to take the Word of God lightly. And the writer, he paints such a beautiful picture in here in Hebrews. He says that what the Christians were doing is like being in a boat that is in a river or at sea. And he pictured them at a dock or anchored. But if they continued to neglect their attachment to the unchanging truth of God's word, the currents of their age would just kind of carry them along and they would drift away. They would drift away from the truth they had heard. It's not, let me be clear, it is not that they would drift away from their eternal salvation. Chapter 6 of Hebrews is going to tell us that as believers in Christ, we have an anchor of the soul that is sure and is steadfast. See, the structure of the verse, it tells us, it shows us that the words, lest we drift away, refers to the things that we have heard. This is to depart in doctrine from the things that you once believed in. You can either hold firmly to the truth of God's word, or you can drift. You can just wander. You can depart from it. And here comes the struggle. You see, we live in an age where the world is trying to absolutely rip us apart from God's truth. We live in an age where the world is trying to separate us from this truth, and Satan himself, he wants us to abandon it. You know, the first time that Angie Baby and I were in Alaska, I was cheap. And oh, I was very cheap. We rented the cheapest car rental you could find. I mean, this thing, Walter, was hardly even a car. It was not much of a car. The check engine light was on most of the entire time. It barely had enough power to get up some of these hills. Well, we headed up the Parks Highway. Why? Because you come to Alaska, you have to go see Denali, right? It's the biggest, biggest mountain in North America. You gotta go see it. And then we headed up there to go to Fairbanks. But you see, this car was so cheap. It was so cheap, it didn't even have cruise control. And I was fine as I was driving up the Parks Highway when I had my eyes on that speedometer. But when I got a little bit distracted, we'll say, in the Denali National Park, when I got caught up in all the beauty of the world that surrounded me, I got to see something in my rearview mirror. You see, I got to see those little red and blue sirens behind me because why? I had drifted and I was pulled over for going a little bit too fast, Mr. Grayson. So for the next few hours, what did I do? I stayed focused. My wife is laughing at me. I stayed focused and I kept my foot steady on that gas and I was fixed on it. I knew that I couldn't do that again because that's embarrassing. And I had taken heed of the warning. But see, then what happens is you get a little bit north of there. You get north of Healy on the parks. You get closer to Fairbanks. And what happens? You start to be able to look back at the mountain range. And the speed limits do change in there, Walter. They do really do change. And it's all too easy again to get caught up in the beauty of the mountains. And some people, we are not naming names this morning, friends, but some people have been known to get pulled over twice in the same day because they quit paying attention. And at least the guy that we are talking about did not get a ticket and has not been pulled over since. But you see, I wonder if we're any better in the Christian faith. I wonder. You see, that's what the writer of Hebrews is warning about. Hebrews is a book of warnings. 
Five times in Hebrews we have warning passages, these strong, strong warning passages about the danger of falling away from the truth, about the danger of not living out the truth of Jesus Christ. And this is the first one. This is the first of these warning passages. Now, I'm going to bore some of you for a second, but let me say this. People misunderstand these warning passages all the time because they look at the warnings and they say, well, these are strong words. These are very strong. And they begin to think that it must, must refer to unbelievers. But notice what does the author do? He includes himself. That's the natural understanding right there. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. You see, here's where our lives intersect with the teaching of the book of Hebrews. Drifting is still today, 2,000 years later, it is still the besetting sin of our day. And the idea given here is not that we purposely do it. It's not like we sit out and say, hey, this weekend I'm going to start drifting in my faith. It's not that. But it comes from this indifference that we have, this lack of concern. You see, it starts here. It starts now. It's an indifference to the teaching of God's Word. It's an indifference to the reading and the studying of God's Word. And you start heading in that direction, and you are going to drift, and you're going to find yourself pulled over on the highway of life. You see, we drift when we leave our anchor behind, our anchor, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, let's be clear, it is not that God's word drift away. It is us who drifts away from God. It is us who drifts away from his truth. It's the subtle things. It's the slow, quiet drift. That's the problem. But you see, when the winds of trouble start to stir up in our lives, the things of Christ are left so, so far behind, sometimes even out of sight because we didn't even notice it, but we drifted. And that's what I love here in Hebrews, the subtle beauty of the words that are used in this text. Drifting away is never, ever a good thing. A car that drifts from its lane, it will crash. A boat that drifts off course will miss its destination. But caught early enough, when you drift, you can avoid the heartache. And the warning passages in Hebrews are like guardrails on the side of the road warning you that, hey, if you go any more further to the side, you are going to end up crashing and you're going to end up going off a cliff in your faith. Now, this is happening to churches, isn't it? They drift when they compromise in their doctrine. They compromise. They give in to sin. They take up the world in an effort to impress the world. Believers have been freely given a gift, the gift of salvation, but you did nothing to earn it, but you should live like you appreciate it. Salvation is a free gift from God, earned by the divine Son of God, who accomplished a purification of sins by His death in our place. We didn't earn it, so let us not be prideful. We received it. So listen up, the writer says. Pay attention to the message of God's word. He's saying our problem is not a lack of knowledge of truth. Our problem is that we have this tendency to let our attention to be drawn away from it. It becomes easy to become careless and to drift away. When we let the profound truth of the person and work of Christ become of little value in our lives, we get distracted looking for the things to replace the work of God and the word of God in our life. We drift away and ignore the warning signs of life. Take verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. 
For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, if you stick with the text and you follow the line of argument, there is some powerful, powerful teaching here in Hebrews. The writer actually used what is known as a Hebrew form of argument, going from a lesser point to a greater point. Meaning if the argument applied is a less important matter, and it's true, you can bet it matters even more in the second point. So break this down with me. The word spoken through angels. Now, what is this a reference to? This is actually a reference to the Mosaic Covenant. This was the Old Testament law. And this was delivered not just by God, that's who we think it was delivered by, and it was, but it was also through the angels. Let's just consider a few verses. Deuteronomy 33, 2. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, and he had shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand, came a fiery law for them. He came with ten thousands of saints, angels, and a lot of them. A real lot of them. Acts 7.53, they received the fathers. They received the law by the direction of angels. And Galatians 3.19, it says that the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So for the Jews, there were certain things you certainly believed would never, ever change. The will of God, they understood, was unchanging. The message of the law mediated by angels was unchangeable. God's revelation did not change. It proved steadfast, and it required one thing. It required obedience. So here's what the author's getting at in Hebrews. Here's what he's trying to tell us. Under the Mosaic Covenant, when a person sinned, the consequences, the punishment for that sin, it was listed out. It was easy to follow in the Old Testament. You do this, and this is what's going to happen. God told the people of Israel exactly what would happen when they sinned. It was clear, and it was direct. The law was strict. The law was binding. And there were serious consequences for those who broke the commandments. And the Jews counted on this. They lived by this. They relied on this. And so the writer of Hebrews is simply telling them even more reliable was the revelation of God that had not come from angels, but from who? The very Son of God. And if the Old Testament saints could not escape the consequence of their sin, of their neglect of God, how do we expect to escape it? You see what he's saying? How do we expect to escape it? And one of the things that people don't want to hear is that the New Testament also spells it out, that if you sin, your sin will find you out. Sin has consequences, even for the believer, especially for the believer. You see, a lot of the heartache we have comes because we don't walk with God. Now, we don't want to admit it. Not all of it. I'm not saying everything's your fault. But a lot of it can be in our own lives. Let me give you a few examples. Christians that don't honor the Lord when it comes to their finances. Christians that don't honor God and how they spend their money. And then they wonder why they struggle. Or how about Christians that bring the garbage? I'm talking about the filth, the bad stuff of Hollywood into their homes. And then they wonder why their kids have learned some of the things that they have learned and do some of the things they do. Sin has a consequence. 
And here in Hebrews, the author is saying, if you turn your back from your responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ to live like someone who has been given this great gift of such a beautiful, great salvation, your sin is going to catch up with you. And notice this, every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Transgression, stepping over the line that God has set. Now this is written to believers. And it is not that we will lose our salvation. Scripture has made that clear. But look at the context of what we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews with me. You see, all those Old Testament quotes that we looked at last week in Hebrews chapter 1, they had a reason. They point to the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. And the big idea here is that the first audience, the Christians, they were forgetting about this victory. They were forgetting about the deliverance that is coming and the rewards that can come for faithful service to Jesus Christ. So let me be clear here. This salvation talked about is not about our final deliverance from hell. It is the salvation, the rescue, the deliverance of the final destiny of man. To reign with Christ over the works of God's hands. You know, if you think that salvation is just about being with God for all of eternity, your understanding, and I'm not trying to be offensive, but your understanding of the scriptures is limited. Because it embraces so much more in the scriptures. It embraces the coming kingdom of God. It embraces the rule and reign of the Son of God with his people throughout all eternity. Now this is a greatly misunderstood text today. Many today think about it as people who are unsaved but profess to follow their Christ. I have no doubt that people like that exist. That they profess to be believers, but they're not really. I have no doubt that those people exist in great number. But I, I believe when we bring that into the text, that's exactly what we're doing. We're forcing it into the text. It's not the meaning given inherent in the words. Go back to verse 1. The author included himself, stating that he himself could even drift away. You've got to understand that the day that this was written in, the church looked nothing like it does today. These were tight. These were integrated little communities centered around the worship of God and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning that they worshiped together, they ate together, they knew one another, and they knew the, each other's testimonies for Christ. You see, it's nothing like we see today when a preacher stands up in front of a church with thousands of professing Christians of mixed company. Take Acts 2. Read it with me. Understand the intimate house churches that they had. Acts 2 tells us this. It says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And then verse 47, it adds the footnote that what? And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. See, the church was just made up of saved. It wasn't this mixed company. Here's what I'm telling you. I believe with all of my heart that when human authors use the term in the New Testament, brethren, I do not believe they ever meant mixed company. Because I do not believe it can be supported one place in the entire New Testament where these men used by God stated that the people they are writing to were a mixed company. But there's a ton of evidence in Scripture that shows that they felt they were written to genuine believers. 
Now, mixed company happens all the time in the church today, but most of the time it did not happen back then. And the idea that certain books of the New Testament were written in mixed company, it's an idea that's very popular out there today in the commentaries. But you can trace this idea all the way down through church history, all the way down to the men who teach it today. And this teaching, it did not come from the New Testament. It came from the pagan religions of the third century. And to be honest, until you sort out this little simple concept, I'm sorry, but I think you're going to misunderstand a huge section of the New Testament. And I did this too at one point in my life. I believe you're going to misunderstand the book of Romans. You're going to misunderstand James, Hebrews, 1 John, and so much more. And this plays a big role here in Hebrews. And in the warning given, he's not questioning their salvation. If he was, you'd see the gospel here. He's assuming they are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This is a warning against neglecting their salvation, not rejecting it. Now, how can we prove it? If Mark is right for once, how can we prove it, Walter? Well, we can from the text. Because the comparison that the author gives are the consequences of sin that were spelled out in the laws of Moses. But what are the laws of Moses about? The laws of Moses are not about how to receive eternal life. The Mosaic laws did not condemn a man to hell if he disobeyed. It was about the consequence of the sin here today, the consequence of sin here now. And so the, the comparison even given is not about salvation. It's not the subject. You see, instead, the author is saying, just as Israel would be blessed in the land of God as his people if they obeyed him, so would there be blessings for the people of Jesus Christ in the eternal state if they do not neglect their salvation here, now, today. When a person broke the Mosaic laws, a person did not lose their regeneration. It wasn't like they're walking along and they sinned and they didn't follow the Mosaic law and somehow they lost their salvation. What did they lose? They lost the blessings to come and they were disciplined by God. See, it's the same teaching here for the believer in Jesus Christ. If believers in the Old Testament didn't escape the consequence of their sin, how can we expect to when we have a greater message delivered through a greater messenger? Sir William Edward Perry he was an English rear admiral, and he was also an Arctic explorer. And at one point, I love this story so much, it makes me laugh. At one point, the, the explorers, they were trying to travel farther north to be able to continue charting out and making their maps, which were so important back then. So they got out their little charts and their gadgets, and they calculated their location, and they began to start the difficult journey north. And as they marched, after hour, after hour, after hour, they felt like they were making good progress, but they were exhausted, and they decided that it was time to stop and rest. And they, again, they took their bearings from the stars, and they discovered something awful. You see, they were actually headed further south than when they had first began, because they were on a large ice flow that was moving to the south faster than what they were walking north. Major bummer. I wonder how many Christians today actually are like that, though. You see, what do we do? We imagine that we're doing just fine. We imagine that our good deeds and maybe even our church attendance and maybe the things we do in our own life, we imagine that we're doing so good and it's taking us so much closer to God. 
But because we do not walk according to his truth, those actions are taking us step by step by step further away from him. And I believe that's what the author of Hebrews is warning about. He's saying, waking up to the truth that many of us are moving in the wrong direction in our lives. You see, taking the easy path, neglecting our salvation, neglecting his truth, neglecting his work. Hebrews is not telling us to become Christians. It's telling us as believers to pay attention to the great salvation we have already received in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we neglect his word, his worship, and our prayer to him. And then what happens? We drift. We drift. We drift from his truth, and that is to drift away from God. And so that's why the author says again in verse 3, if we neglect so great a salvation... Five times, five times in these verses, the author included himself in this, warning himself and warning the believers about losing out on the opportunity to reign with Christ, a reward that will come in his coming kingdom. Now, no believer can escape the consequence of sin. If you disobey what Christ has said, to neglect our salvation, what does that mean? It is to have little concern about our future with Christ. It is the apathy. It is the indifference in the life of a believer. But notice in the rest of verse 3 that this salvation cannot be a reference to justification. Read it with me. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by who? The Lord. And was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now just get your investigative mindset on for just a second. Whatever this salvation here is in this text, it says, at the first began to be spoken of by the Lord. Justification was spoken of in the Old Testament first. But it was the Lord who first spoke of his followers inheriting a kingdom and ruling and reigning with him when Christ returns at his second coming. This salvation is great. This deliverance is great because Christ designed it in his own glory. Because it took the incarnation, it took the crucifixion of Christ, and it took the resurrection of God the Son to make it available to us. You see, the more revelation of God that you have, the more responsibility that you actually have before him to walk with the Savior. Meaning this, God's grace shown to us through his son does not mean that we can sit there and just be indifferent to the things of Christ in our life. It does not mean we can sit there and just pick and choose what we want to do when we want to obey God. And I got to tell you the heartbreaking part of this text as a pastor is to see from my vantage point the number of times that people neglect Christ and his word and then you watch them drift, drift, drift away. It's very painful to watch. Maybe some of you have seen it in your friends and loved ones. So at the end of verse 3, the author says, This future aspect of our salvation was confirmed to us by those who heard him, by those who heard Christ. It doesn't mean the apostles were dead by this point in time. In fact, I think the evidence suggests that this book was written early on and that the first audience of this book had heard the preaching of the apostles. They had witnessed the miracles done when the apostles had first preached. Which is why the author went on to say in verse 4 that God even confirmed the message preached by Christ and his apostles. Notice with me. It says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. 
So the purposes here of the miracles, the purpose of the wonders, the signs, and the gift of the Holy Spirit was to what? To authenticate the message given. They were expressions of the sovereignty of the Son of God, who had gone to sit at the right hand of the Father. You see, this is God putting his seal of approval on the work of Christ and the work of the apostles. God was working in revealing the gospel of grace. God was working in his message of his coming kingdom. And the first audience of Hebrews had not heard the Son directly. They had not seen firsthand the revelation given by the Son, but they had heard the apostles of Christ. These men, for three and a half years, they had walked and they had talked with Jesus, our Savior. John put it this way. Do you remember what he said? He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning what? The word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. They declare to us Christ. You see, the apostles, they just carried forward that message that they had heard directly from Jesus Christ. And as they did, the miracles authenticated them as God's messenger with God's message to this new generation of believers. But now they had heard the revelation of God, and so they were in the same boat as us in this room today, accountable to God for what they knew, leaving us and leaving them without an excuse. To neglect what we know to be true is to bring the discipline of God upon us, but never, ever lose sight of his love, because he loves you far more than anyone else can ever love you, and he wants his best for you. His discipline, it's always designed to bring you back into fellowship with him. It's hard for some people to understand that the danger of drifting, it's perhaps our most dangerous enemy in the Christian faith. You see, most believers don't wake up one day and just decide, hey, I'm going to reject God. And most believers don't just wake up someday and say, I'm going to rebel against him. But they absolutely every day will wake up and say, I'm going to neglect my relationship with him. You see, you don't have to commit great sins in order to ruin your walk with Christ. All you got to do is just neglect it. And here are the warning signs. Identify them, if you will, in your own life. A loss of focus. Maybe your heart changes from the things of God to the things of this world. Your priorities start to shift in life. You're more focused on yourself than on helping others in their faith. Maybe it's a loss of passion. You no longer have a passionate love for God, a passionate love for his word. Or you take the path of least resistance. Your life, it begins to look more and more like the world and less and less like Jesus Christ, our Savior. Or perhaps you get a loss of commitment where your church attendance begins to dwindle and become less and less important to you. It rarely happens all of a sudden, but it happens as we slowly, slowly drift. When you stop obeying God's word, you face the danger of drifting away. And even pastors can drift. I'm sure most of you recognize the hymn, Come Thou Fount. But there's an interesting story behind it. The words say, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of what? Loudest praise. And do you guys remember the third stanza, the third verse? It says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave. The God I love. 
Do we do that? Oh, we do that. British Baptist pastor Robert Robinson penned these words at just the ripe age of 22 in the year 1757. He had been converted under the preaching of George Whitfield, and at the age of 26, he became the pastor of Stone Yard Baptist Chapel in Cambridge. Horrible church name, if you ask me. Stone Yard Baptist Chapel, what is that? Well, he preached salvation through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and that church grew as a result of it. It grew up over to 1,000 people. But after a few years, Robert started drifting from what he had heard. You see, a liberal Unitarian professor challenged his belief in the Bible, and Robert literally fulfilled the words of his song where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. In letters to friends, he indicated he had embraced Unitarian doctrine and no longer believed that Jesus was God. He stopped reading, he stopped preaching the Bible, and somehow he was still allowed to be a pastor, but the church attendance, as you can imagine, began to decline. Over several years, he began to lose the joy of his salvation, and he struggled something in ministry. He was absolutely one miserable man. And according to author Warren Wiersbe, one day, Robert was traveling in a stagecoach from Cambridge to London. And a young lady was reading a book, and she turned to Robinson and said, Sir, this is a wonderful, wonderful hymn. Do you know it? Well, sure enough, he recognized it as Come Thou Fount. Well, he broke down and confessed he had written the words as a hymn as a young man, but now he felt that he too, he too had wandered far from God. And the young lady said, but as you wrote, God's streams of mercy are never ceasing. And through her encouragement, through her words, God used her and Robert was restored to the Lord and rediscovered the joy, the beautiful joy of his salvation in Christ. And he started believing again. He started preaching again the Bible. And he faithfully served the Lord until he died at the age of 55. Because listen, you can drift, but you can also return to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So why should we listen to Jesus? Well, the penalty for ignoring or neglecting him has eternal consequences. You see, after we die, we face the judgment. Hebrews 9.27, it tells us, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, what? The judgment. Take heed to the words of Christ, because the consequence, it is eternal. And if you're not concerned this morning about drifting in your faith, I got to tell you something, you should be. You absolutely should be. And if you're not convinced of the danger, let me give you a few words of advice before we close. First, Absorbing and applying what we have heard is more essential than seeking out something new. If we're not being transformed, in other words, by the old stuff, there's no point in sitting there trying to learn more. Yes, growing in the knowledge of Christ is part of growing, but you have to start applying it at some point. You have to start walking it out. And I can't do it for you. You have to do it. You have to live it. You see, if you can't keep down the milk, you shouldn't move on to the meat and potatoes. Amen? Second, overcoming the danger of drifting, as I just said, requires us to start applying what we know. Because we drift when we let the currents of an unbelieving world carry us off. Or we drift when we let those inner desires that we have take us away. But we begin to rely on our own wandering instincts then, rather than anchoring our lives on the immovable truth of Scripture. So we need to apply it not just monthly, not just weekly, 
But every moment of every day, we need to live it out. We need to become so anchored in God's truth that even when making moment-by-moment decisions, we begin to think God's thoughts rather than our own. And third, neglecting God's salvation will lead to inescapable consequences. You see, if you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God, 1 Thessalonians 5, it teaches us that you've been once for all delivered from God's wrath. You don't have to fear eternal wrath. So we do not stand in a position of condemnation before God, thankfully. But we are going to see in Hebrews that God loves his children enough. He loves us enough to discipline us. So as we drift away from the strong moorings of God's word and the safe harbor of his church, we begin to forget about the greatness of salvation and all the blessings that come to us in Christ. And the sweetness of our Savior and our salvation in him, it becomes routine. And see, God loves us so much that when we do that, he's going to chase us down. He's going to pursue us bringing the trials and challenges into our lives, often painful to draw us back to him. We drift when we don't listen to God's word. Or we drift when we listen to God's word and our lives don't change. We drift when apathy replaces our desires to gather with the believers. We drift when we get complacent about our own sin and we forget that ending well is more important than a good start. So I want to encourage you to respond early to his love when he's calling you back to him. Keep short accounts with God. Open your ears to his correction and be aware of the danger of drifting because as the hymn writer wrote so long ago, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.